Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. The day has finally arrived. It is Halloween, and I am so thrilled we have a special spooktacular for you today with a very special guest whose whole career from childhood has spanned through cinema and entertainment and television. He's appeared in such things as Village of the Damned, the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids television series. He was in the Nightmare on Elm Street remake. He was in All About Evil, Greg Araki's Kaboom. He was the star of CW's Secret Circle, the Sarah Connor Chronicles, and so much more. Please welcome to the show, Thomas Decker. Hello, Michael. You're my new publicist, apparently. Wow, it's just like I'm out of breath just listening. And that's not even your whole resume. <laughs> no, it's very long, very long and tragic. Um, <laughs> well, welcome. Thanks for coming today. Thank you for having me. I mean, of all guests to have on this most sacred of spooky holidays, I uh, am happy to have someone who is literally a child of the damned. Yes, and it is my favorite, you know, day of the year. So, or night, depending on how you look at it. Well, if you do it right, it's a little bit yeah, of both. Yeah, it's a little bit of both, yeah. Well, let's start things off with the same first question I ask all of my guests, and it's simply this. Why horror? You know, and you can interpret that however you want. What drew you to it? What is the connection? Why horror? Um, <clears throat> I, I don't know, you know, I'm sure a lot of your guests have the same answer, the kind of, uh, the anthem of born this way. <laughs> but I, I really was, I know from, I mean, from age four, I was only drawn to the dark things. So, you know, I only like the villains in Disney movies. I only like Night on Bald Mountain and Fantasia, that sequence. I, Beetlejuice, you know, at a really young age. So I don't know what gene I was born with that I was automatically um, drawn to it. I do know the perfect storm that kind of cultivated my obsession was that, um, you know, my parents were artists and censorship was very much not a thing in our household. I mean, we, you know, I wasn't watching pornography or anything, but <laughs> right, right. their whole thing was about kind of watching things and discussing them. And my father was a huge cinephile. He had a, a library of about 600 VHS tapes with about three illegally ripped films on each one <laughs> and uh, kind of book so you could find what you wanted to watch. And so I was watching things like you know, The Exorcist and The Shining and Poltergeist and all these films at a, at a probably highly inappropriate uh, age, if you ask other people. And then, of course, also because my father was a painter and his favorite living painter was Giger, mm -hmm. uh, that was another huge influence on me from, you know, seven or eight. And I remember... I had all the Giger books and my parents would get chastised a lot, you know, by other people that they were letting such a young child look at these images. But, you know, I wasn't aware at that time of the sexual implications. Right. It was just kind of the, the darkness of it and the edge of it and the craft of it. And so I think that definitely helped solidify why certainly long, even before I hit puberty. And then I kind of had my second wave of love for the genre, but right. it started really young. And I, like I said, I don't know intrinsically what it is in me that uh, I was drawn to, but I can certainly see um, the moments and experiences and references that, that led to my lifelong obsession. I think it's interesting, too, especially with regard to art, like talking about Giger, uh, because I can see the argument for film. But when you're looking at a still painting or a piece of art, as children, we don't necessarily 
intuit that something is appropriate or inappropriate. It's the reaction of the world around us that tells us. I think that like we're just drawn to things and we see it like when you're a little kid and you look at those space aliens or giant like silver heads like sticking out of like the biomass. Like yeah, you're not like, quite getting that the hallways are you know vulvas and the alien head is a phallic symbol. You're kind of just right. going with it in the in tone, you know, and right. and it is a dark tone. But and and again, my parents both being European like you said, still images they didn't think were, right. you know, art is art. And that was, and I'm very grateful that I was raised that way. Well, I think it instills a different kind of attitude, both towards how we intake art, but also sexuality, because if you sort of just accept it early on as a, a fact of human nature, we don't put this weird taboo onus on it that America specifically has. Like I know that, you know, when you travel abroad, sexuality is more frequently just a fact. You'll see it in commercials. Yeah. You'll see it in TV. Uh, well, it's interesting, even if you look at, like, say, so my mother's from the UK and I'm half UK, half US citizen. Um, you know, with, with film ratings, it's really fascinating. It's right. like you can have graphic sex and remain a pretty acceptable rating. But right. if you're, you know, hacking your grandmother up with a chainsaw, then they put, you know, the 18 on it. And there is a difference where in the States, it's like violence is acceptable and sex and nudity is not. Right. And in Europe, it's it's kind of the it's kind of the flip flip side flip side of it. <clears throat> yeah, especially because the UK has a history of banning violent films. I know the whole video nasty list. Some of the list. best films, <laughs> absolutely. Ever made. Uh, but you know, I think that I think that we could get off our prudish, prudish asses here in America. Yeah. I'd like to see a little more sexy sex. <laughs> on, yeah. Well, I mean, in most things, like let's keep it off Nickelodeon, <laughs> but. Uh, you know, so something really interesting is that although this is the Halloween special, we're actually recording it on National Coming Out Day. We are. Uh, Which I didn't even know existed <laughs> until you texted me this right. morning. Uh, do you have anything to tell us, Thomas? Oh, uh, well, um, yeah, I mean, I came out, uh, I think, in June. Yeah. June, I think it was June. Well, publicly, anyway. Publicly, yes. Yeah. <laughs> there was there was a little bit of a a, a moment in the press where mm -hmm. you uh, who you had just been private with your life prior to that uh, came out and um, it's a whole new world now I guess for you yeah I mean the whole breakdown of it was you know and it's a tricky subject because um, I think there's a lot of animosity from. Uh, from the gay community that if there's anyone who has any remote kind of celebrity platform, you know, if, and th if they're closeted, they sort of take it as a, as a form of betrayal. Right. Mine was a little more complicated because, right. um, you know, I, I, you've known me for years. I've yeah. never been, uh, closeted or not proud in my own, life in my own circle. But by the time I was kind of figuring out really that this was my identity, right. um, I wasn't at the public eye level that right. I had been when I wasn't sure. So it wasn't like a complete boldface lie to the public. It was mm -hmm. more that, you know, for instance, when I did come out, I also released that I'd married my husband in April and we've been together since, um, late 2014. And pretty much from that point on, I'd been, um, behind the camera, I, I was directing my film. I was, I, and I wasn't in TV, and I wasn't in films, and I wasn't in the press, and I wasn't even really in the public. So right. I didn't feel. By the time we got together, I was like, okay, yes, like I'm proud to declare this, but I don't really see what the point is because I'm not present currently. Right. You know, I'm I'm writing and directing and producing. 
And so this sort of mishap that, you know, took place at Outfest where he never said my name, so I will never say his name. As I, I, that's I, classy. Hidden yeah. in the letter. But there was a producer um, who, you know, won an award and kind of took his moment to, uh, he, like I said, he didn't say my name, but the public quickly deduced who mm-hmm. he was speaking about. And it was kind of a false claim and also kind of an attack that... Uh, he's speaking about when I was 17, you right. know, and, and who really knows who they are when they're 17? I didn't, you right. know, I mean, I knew certain things and certain things have never changed even from childhood. Right. Um, <clears throat> certain opinions and outlooks. But, uh, so when that happened, I just went, you know what? Like I'm 29, right. I'm married. I'm happy. I'm proud. I'm not mm-hmm. ashamed. If this person has kind of brought me back into some sort of spotlight, then I'm not going to let it be stolen. Right. If, if, if I've been put in this position, then I want to be able to speak for myself. And so I did. And it was, you know, um, it's amazing how, supportive everybody has been it's you know and again you got to remember it's different time you know and i think that's something a lot of critics and by this i just mean people like at large the armchair critics of twitter and the internet (laughs) need to remember is that coming out is a process yeah and for everyone it's different and a very personal one and a very personal one and i think that when you come out you are seizing agency over your own life (laughs) so it's even though helpful for visibility and I understand the arguments for and against you know people in the limelight to come out we have to remember that by claiming our own agency it is not our place to try and take it from somebody else and that's really important and I I, I think that uh, when you uh, released your statement in June mm-hmm. one of the things that I really liked that you said was it's it's uh, a, a very important and personal moment and uh, that's something that I just think that we all, as members of this community, need to do well to remember, is that it is a personal moment. Yeah. And by the time each of us get to the point where we say those words, uh, it's a journey. And everyone's journey is different. And the thing is, is you don't just come out once in your life. This is the thing that we don't often talk about. You have to come out many times to yeah, many there's, people. There's yeah. steps. There's several yeah, yeah. steps. And I think I want, you know, the one thing I want people to know about me was that I wasn't sort of living in terror of, oh, no, my career will be over. Right. If I release this, it was more that my whole life I've been an extremely private person in general. This right. was why, you know, now, of course, it's so commonplace, but I I didn't want to ever be on Twitter or Instagram. I never had a Facebook, right. not because of hiding my sexuality, just right. because I didn't feel the necessity to expose right. all my opinions and all myself. But again, times have shifted. I, right. I first got my Twitter and Instagram because I was working for the CW and it was a job requirement. Right. Oh, that's interesting. <clears throat> and I mean, it's, you know, it's something that, and they're very smart about that. You have to take on that position. Right. So I did, uh, never really wanting to share anything. And like you said, there are steps of it's not just coming out about your sexuality it's coming out about uh your 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 past your childhood your your fears your opinions and all these things now are so not just exposed on social media but they're what is most desired you know and it it's i'll say this as a little side note that's not the coming out thing but it fascinates me that um you know las vegas is my hometown Mm -hmm. and when this horrendous tragedy hit um, I posted, you know, a message about how you can help and where you can go and the relief. And I think there was about, uh, 700 likes. Right. And then I posted a video of my dog 
rolling around and <laughs> biting my wrist and I, I got almost 3,000. Yeah, yeah. You know, so the, the sort of mode and use of, so not that I'm complaining because my right. dog's very cute and I understand why you want oh, to Oh, your see dog him. is adorable. So, yeah, I probably special. liked that post. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. But I, I don't um, know, that's a non sequitur, but I guess I'm just saying that. Um, well, the culture of hot takes on the internet is in a lot of cases, exactly that. People like want to like hop in, have a hot take, uh-huh. but then that's not really activism. That's no. a sentence. Like if you really believe in a cause, you have to go do something. Yeah. And uh, that's it. Like, I mean, I, though I do think people are using the internet as a powerful tool to make changes. Absolutely. I think we're seeing it right now in Hollywood with, with some of the spearheading of like the outing of the sexual uh, abuse allegations. Yep. Twitter has been a powerful tool to like help, help lead that charge. Absolutely. No, it can do amazing things. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not, but I'm it not. depends who's behind the keyboard as with anything. Right. Yeah. 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 But yeah, no, to conclude, you know, the, the outing of it, it wasn't some sort of, uh, um, horrendously painful, oh my God, I have to do this. By the time I did, I, I was, I've been so comfortable in my own skin for so, I mean, to the point where I was willing to marry a man, you know? Um, well, I think that something that people need to remember, you've been acting since you were how old? Five years old. 25 years. 25. You are a veteran. (laughs) Um, you so since five years old, you have been in the spotlight in some degree. Mm-hmm. And when you're in this industry and every little private moment is rare, you have to hold on to things that are yours to like maintain some humanity. Yeah, that's really true. I hadn't thought about that. And I think I think the way I did that was bury myself in um other private creative processes. Like right. music and and writing and now directing. I think that those, Mm -hmm. those were the places where I could feel free to be creative and, and not have to worry about, you know, the glaring eye. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, speaking of glaring eyes, this is a Halloween special. Let's not, (laughs) let's not get stalled on such serious things, (laughs) but I think, you know, uh, you hadn't really sat down to do an interview since the whole outfest shenanigans. So this is the first time. And it's so nice that we actually just get to talk about shit that I like. I'm not yeah. plugging anything. <laughs> well, then let's, you know, let's dig into the world of horror. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mentioned in the intro, and, you know, you have been acting since you were five years old. You did a lot of really kind of amazing high-profile gigs as a child, you know, including voicing Fievel and American Story uh, video sequels. Yes. And uh, li- is it Littlefoot? Yes. And the Land Before Time video sequels. Uh, and then you kind of dipped into horror early with uh, Village of the Damned. Very So, I mean, it would probably be foolish to assume you have you were already, like, obsessed with horror by the time you are on set with John Carpenter, but was that like, what was that like? Tell me. Well, it's strange. Village of the Damned, I, I've spoken a little bit about this, but not in much detail. You know, I was six years old, and I didn't know who John Carpenter was. Right. Obviously. Um... But it, and I'll tell you, there's a funny story actually, which you'll like, which kind of relates to, I suppose the uh, the outsiderness of both loving horror and being queer and whatever was. Um, I'd auditioned three times to play David, who was the was the one kid that wasn't, uh, you know, that had emotion, had a soul. He, right, was, right. he was the outsider, and John Carpenter and Sandy King were so good with all the kids, both on set and in this auditioning process. And we had the final test at John's house mm-hmm. and, um, they had, you know, games and snacks and all these things. Cause we were all so young. 
And John Carpenter has told me and Sandy King has told me that they came out and they had a basketball hoop out back and they said to all the kids to, so that they could blow off steam before they went in for the tests, right. you know, who wants to go play basketball? Everybody ran out of the place, but me. <laughs> and I sat very close to my mother because I couldn't even read at this point. I was so young. So she would just kind of read the lines and then I would learn them and they would, and they said, they were like, don't you want to go outside and play basketball? And I said, no, I have to keep running my lines. <laughs> and they said that they thought I was so strange and outsider that in at, like right at that moment, they kind of chose that I was right for David. But it was, it, it's a, it's a memory that is stronger than memories. I, I have at older ages. It was right. really, and John particularly, I was so curious about how everything worked and the cameras and the et cetera, et cetera. And wasn't at all, you know, people always ask, oh, you were in a horror movie as a child. Were you afraid? No, I wasn't fucking afraid. Right. It was heaven. I was, you know, it's all make-believe. But I remember when it was done, I said to my parents, I was like, that's actually what I want to do. I want to do what John does. I want to direct. And it right. was from that young an age. And so, and of course, then after doing that, I watched all of John's movies. Mm -hmm. I, I, I watched the first John Carpenter movie I saw was The Fog, and we watched it while we were shooting because we were shooting in the same town in Point Race in Northern California. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, <clears throat> he shot both those films in the same little spot. And so I think my mom was kind of like, well, you know, you know the town and you know John, he can't be that scared. And of course I was actually terrified. Right. And I still think it's a highly underrated um, Carpenter movie. But yeah, it was a, it was a big, again, a big addition to... Um, kind of what led me down the road of dark interests. I do have to say as a non sequitur, cause I know as a fan of horror, you'll appreciate this, but I think of the fog every time I record an episode of the show, not, not just cause when <laughs> we are Adrian Barbeau and the well, lighthouse, <laughs> because like you, you see, right? Like it's sitting very close to this microphone it with is. the headphones on where you, you can hear your own voice, very velvety in your ears. Antonio Bay. Yeah. <laughs> and I even had, uh, one of my, my previous guests, JT Seaton is a big fog fan and I, he it was so like into the movie. Mm -hmm. I let him send the episode out as, as <laughs> Adrian Barbeau. Isn't it KB Antonio? Okay. I think it's KB. I think, I think so. Uh, Stevie Wayne. Stevie Wayne. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, have you encountered John Carpenter in the years since? I have um, <clears throat> briefly. I. I. God. The last time I saw John in person, I think, was probably when I was about twenty-one or twenty-two. So it's been a while. But mm -hmm. um, I have friends who will uh, see him at conventions and. He does remember me. And we just did actually uh, last year, I think, we did the 25-year or 20-year anniversary Blu-ray of Village of the Damned. Oh, for Scream Factory? No, for uh, Anchor Bay, I think. Oh. Okay. We, I think. I, look, for I'm, Antonio Bay. I'm horrible. For Antonio Bay. <laughs> yeah. I'm horrible with the with the names of everything. But mm -hmm. yeah, it was really fun. They came to my house and did a, a little retrospective interview. And it was a great um, kind of documentary, John and Sandy and pretty much everybody was, it was crazy to see all the kids all grown up because we've all lost touch, of course, you know, years ago. And so to, right. to then kind of see, oh God, like I remember them at six, seven, eight, nine years old. And now they're all, now we're all old. That's gotta yeah. be really surreal. It was surreal. Uh, I won't stick too much to your childhood roles, but I do have to bring up one other thing. Mm -hmm. uh, when I first moved to LA, one of the first people I worked for was Stuart Gordon. Uh -huh. And uh, <laughs> Stuart Gordon, of course, famous to horror fans for making From Beyond and Reanimator, but he also was the creator of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. And you have the honor of having played the kid in the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids spinoff series for Disney Channel. Yes. And you worked with Stuart on an episode, didn't you? He did. He came in and did our Halloween episode. How appropriate. It's very fitting. Yeah. yeah. He, cause I, I don't think he was a producer on the show. Mm -hmm. 
I think he was a producer. On, I know he was a producer on the film. Right. He was probably like creator emeritus or something like yeah. that. Yeah. But he came in and he did our Halloween episode, which was actually, a, you know, that show was a kid's show for Disney. But it, it, that episode was actually really good because it it, it came before. Uh, do you remember the movie Urban Legend? That yeah. Came out? So this actually came out before that movie. And it was the same thing. All the urban legends came to life. And so the alligator in the sewer and the, you know. I don't think we did the dog in the microwave because I don't think that would have been approved by Disney. Not till Lizzie McGuire. <laughs> Not till, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it took Lizzie McGuire to break the mold. Um, but yeah. no, but yeah, he came and directed and I remember he was great. I mean, and again, though, I, I do look back on these experiences with a slightly regretful heart because I didn't know who I was working for at the time. Right. I didn't know who Stuart Gordon was. I didn't know who John Carpenter was. I just knew that I admired them and I would talk to them right. about horror project. I think because that's all I was into. Right. I mean, that's all I cared about. So even though you were still learning about kind of the legacies of these guys, Stuart Gordon and John Carpenter, you recognized early on the power of, of the director and uh, sort of the importance of that that place on the film set. You've had such a long career and you've worked with so many people. Who was the first director that you stepped foot on set with where you realized that like, oh my God, I'm working with this person? Oh, man. I mean, like I said, as a child, I, I didn't know who John Carpenter was, for instance, but I was enamored by his power and mm -hmm. control and vision. And, um, so even though I was so young, it, it was, uh, a defining memory. And I think I said earlier, you know, the mem a memory that I still is clearer to me than memories that came later on. But I think then, you know, as an adult, Greg Araki was really, it was a real thrill to, be in a film for him because I'd seen Mysterious Skin. Um, and as a, I've spoken about it before as a child of uh, sexual abuse, you know, I hadn't seen a movie that really captured that so truthfully and so honestly and so realistically. And I was such a fan to the point where we were at the same management company. And this was years before I ended up doing Kaboom for him. I'd asked to meet him just to tell him how much the movie meant to me. And we'd met and it was very nice, but then I still had to audition a million times for Kaboom. <laughs> um, I can't say even that doing Kaboom was like a necessarily overly pleasant experience just because I was so intimidated at the thought of pleasing this director. Because then, of course, on top of it, I'd seen the Doom Generation and The Living End and Nowhere. And, and they all kind of lived in the other realm of what I'm interested in, which is the kind of goth rock, punk rock. Um, yeah, like that teen apocalypse yeah, sort of. Yeah, you know, and that's still all the, you know, and also I should note, not just from Greg, but, you know, music is also a huge part of my life. And uh, most of the music that I loved kind of nearing puberty is the same music I love now and a lot of it came from horror film soundtracks so all the bands that I love Rob Zombie White Zombie Nine Inch Nails KMFDM Susie and the Banshees Depeche Mode they all kind of they come from that same dark universe that both Greg and the horror world and Alice Cooper and you know right. um, so yeah working for Greg was it was a really amazing um, experience I, I every day I couldn't believe that I was there mm -hmm. um, you had to make some vulnerable moves for that role too. Yeah, yep. it was and it was the first you know I'd never done a sex scene really I'd never been naked before and then in this movie I basically fuck everybody in the film and uh the opening shot I'm full frontal naked uh in a hallway um I remember taking my mom came to Cannes for the oh, premiere no. with me and I hadn't told her anything about it and I had to quickly like three minutes before it started be like look I haven't seen it but be prepared um 
But yeah, that was that was a big. Was experience. that like one of those moments where like, of course, you had shot the nudity scene, but like because there's always a gap between when a movie is shot and it actually comes out. Did, you're sitting there with your mom and you're like, oh shit! Like, was it like a like a dawning epiphany? Where well, yeah, and also just because he hadn't shown it to us. So imagine the first time I'm seeing this movie is with like, you know, 3,000 people at the Palais in Cannes. And I, <laughs> I have no idea what it's going to be or how it's going to look or feel. But no, I, I, again, that, you know, I think Greg, um, sometimes he does comedies, obviously, and very well. Right. But he lives in the horror director world to me. You know, his, his films to me are kind of the alternative. Uh, like the Doom Generation is a horror film. and Oh, absolutely. It totally is. And it's, um, but it, but it also exists in, in the queer world. And I was so, the biggest honor of that movie was afterwards, I got a lot of letters from, um, you know, boys and girls, all young and kind of, and bisexual and figuring themselves out, which was what the whole movie was about. Right. And saying that that film really, uh, helped them and inspired them and opened their eyes or, you know, they felt they fit with that film. And of course, um, I never, I didn't have that kind of epiphany of who I was sexually from a film, but I certainly, my identity as a human being has come from many films. Um, so I was honored to be a part of that. And I think it's interesting, too, because Kaboom especially is a film that shows a spectrum of sexuality. A yeah. lot of times when we uh, see queer cinema, it's like a lesbian movie uh-huh. or a gay movie or, you know, a trans narrative. But we often kind of leave people who are fluid or bi uh, out of narratives unfairly. Yeah. And a movie like Kaboom is so important because those people need to be represented. And I think that response from viewers really speaks to that need on screen. And it's really interesting how that all breaks down because I wrote a film, um, which is probably, uh, if not my favorite top of scripts that I've written, it's a film called stay with me. And it's, uh, it was loosely inspired by a true murder case that happened in the early nineties in Indiana. Uh, and, uh, that would involved teenagers. Um, and they, in the true story, they were all female. And I sort of, I really wanted to tell this story. I won't get into the details of why, but it fascinated me, but I have kind of a problem with writing really like this is the true story because Mm -hmm. I wasn't there and I don't know these people and I can read every book imaginable, but I still, I don't feel that I have license to kind of create, uh, the truth. Right. But I sort of reached this point where I said, okay, if I kind of mix them into, um, male and female teenagers and there are gay, they're lesbian and gay, and one's bisexual, and it's kind of this plethora of sexuality. But what was interesting was, what you're saying about when we see gay cinema, like you said, it's, you know, and usually it's like a, either a coming of age or a love story. Mine is right. about really fucked up um, goth kids in the 80s who commit this brutal murder. Right. And when I first sent it to a couple people, granted this was a few years ago, they had this reaction that it was actually homophobic mm-hmm. because they said, you know, you can't position young gay people as murderers as awful people. And I thought, well, that's such a crock of shit because basically you're, you're again, just separating them as not being people. All people are capable of good things and terrible things. Well, and then it puts us in this corner with queer cinema where there are people kind of controlling what the narrative of queer cinema is supposed to be. Right. Um, And I think the true liberation of queer art is when we get to represent ourselves anyway, any any which way. And, you know, there was a time where we took movies about queer identity 
for whatever we could get because we weren't getting a lot. But, you know, just having grown up through the 90s now to 2017, the era of like, he's he's a nerd at school who falls in love with the captain of the basketball team. It's so boring. Well, it's not even that it's boring, but we have that movie. We have have our teen coming out movies and they're so important. Right. And they're so needed. They're they're important to the young audience to feel that they have a home and et cetera. But it is 2017 now and we're out in, in, in a way, in a lot of different ways. Let's have narratives where, you know, we are good people and we are bad people and we're people. And if you look yeah. at the new queer cinema movement that happened in the early 90s yeah. with Todd Haynes with Poison, Van Sant with uh, My Own Private Idaho, I believe. Yeah. And, um, um, Isaac and, and Greg yeah. Rocky with The yeah. Living End, you know, this yeah. was this was a really progressive period mm-hmm. that I think kind of is in time for a resurgence of now, you know. Right. Um, and I do think, of course, you know, Poison is a is a horror film in many ways. It's a you know, it's, a, it's certainly about back then with the AIDS epidemic and everything else. It was an unflinching kind of look at it in the guise of a 50 science fiction horror film. So again, the the two genres continue to kind of. I don't know, create a mitosis and support each other. And I, I don't know. Right. <laughs> but I think it's interesting because, you know, over the course of this discussion, we have uh, inferred that Greg Araki in his way is a horror filmmaker. You just mentioned Todd Haynes as uh, someone who made a horror film Safe in, in a way. Safe is a horror film too. Oh my God, Safe With is a horror film. One of my film. favorite movies. But. but these are people that generally to the world at large maybe wouldn't be considered horror filmmakers. But there is this connection of queerness to that sense of other that exists in horror. And I'm wondering for you as a filmmaker and as a performer, do you think that that queer connection to horror is is a crucial one? Um, I think I think the 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 connectivity of isolation and loneliness and disconnect, mm-hmm. which of course are prime emotions and feelings that you have when you are queer in yeah. any way not just sexually but you know when you are just an outsider there is a draw there is a connection to the only way that these horrendous things that happen in horror films can feel comforting right is if they're taking on these archetypes of well the people in reality are repressing me or abusing me and i am the victim but i want to be the winner right and you kind of take on the the guise of of the villain, but I, you know, so yes, I do think they're intrinsically bound many oftentimes. However, I do also think that, um, that loneliness, even outside of the queer element, you look at the films of Europe, you know, people in the States really don't think of, unless you really are a horror aficionado and a lover, you know, from the outside perspective, it's, oh, it's the slasher movie, gory, you know, pointless, meaningless world that's not art. And that's why horror films are so often snubbed in the kind of Oscar running category. I mean, like, for instance, I thought, um, I thought Essie Davis in The Babadook should have been nominated for an Oscar. I thought she was, I thought she was yeah. absolutely phenomenal. But it's a performance that, of course, goes unnoticed right. because of the genre that it's within. But in Europe, particularly, dating all the way back to Bresson, Antonioni, Pasolini, all the way up through Haneke, Von Trier, Gaspar Noe, you know, these are filmmakers who are revered. And now Yorgos Lathamos, who did Dogtooth and his Killing of a Sacred Deer coming out. And these are filmmakers that are, you know, can award winning auteurs, but I think they would all admit that they 
live and thrive in a universe that at least is facilitated by feelings of fear and loneliness and darkness and disturbing situations. And I think Aronofsky and Fincher are kind of the only two major American directors who are allowed to live under the guise of Oscar movies, but are still making horror films. Because black film, black film, black film, black, black, black Swan and Mother are essentially horror movies. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it is interesting to, that delineation between the European uh, consideration of, of horror cinema and the American consideration, because when you look at people like Dario Argento, mm-hmm. Uh, I should have had him on my list that I just rattled off. He, Whoops. <laughs> uh, he is truly an art house filmmaker and yeah. is treated as such. He establishes atmosphere. His movies have this dreamlike quality that even though you know the most horrific things are happening, there's a part of you that sort of is drawn in and seduced. You want to be in that school. Well, it's beautiful. Yeah. I, I, and it's like Lynch. Yeah. Lynch to me is kind of the American Argento in a way. They're both, obviously Argento is much more a horror filmmaker, quote unquote, than Lynch, mm-hmm. but Lynch is a horror filmmaker too. But they both trade in dream logic. Exactly. Yeah. And they kind of pull you in through, a, like you said, a seductive beauty. Right. <clears throat> and we talked a lot about the identity of otherness and those feelings of, of being ostracized that you know draw people to horror and before the show started you and i had a conversation about how important carrie was to you <laughs> when you were growing up uh tell me a little bit about that relationship again carrie was a film that i saw probably at a highly inappropriate young age <laughs> i think i saw it at about seven or eight because again it was in my father's collection he loved it and again you know kind of like with Giger and, you know, the artists that I was drawn to as a child, I wasn't aware of the, the symbol, like the sexual symbolism and the menstruation and the whole sort of that whole element of it. What I saw was a film that I really connected with because at the time I was, believe it or not, even though I was a working child actor, we didn't have much money. And I was in a really rough public school and was so horrendously bullied. Um, I mean, I'm talking hospitalized twice and really, you know, bad. Uh, Carrie was sort of my, you know, it's the ultimate solace that you see someone who's lonely and quiet and, and sort of broken, you know, right. who, and again, the, the, it's such a connection to the high school politics and, and height and teenage. But even as a child, if you're going through that in elementary school, yeah. you can connect to that feeling of, Again, it's it was one of the only stories where the victim is the villain and the villain is the victim. I mean, really, Carrie is the ultimate. She's the only good person in that film, really. You know, and she. But at the end it's of the true. day, when it becomes too much, she takes back her power, and that was a huge. And then again, just tonally and stylistically, the way that movie is scored and shot, I think probably even with all the films that I've seen subsequently. That's kind of the, the, the root of me, you know, that feeling, that dark kind of oppressive, um, you know, and not having very many likable characters. And th- those are the worlds of cinema that I love and a lot of people are turned off by. Um, and it's interesting, too, I will say I'm not by in any means not bashing the remake, but it's mm-hmm. interesting that in the remake, you know, the biggest thing why I couldn't get on board with it was because Chloe Grace Moretz is beautiful and there's no reason that she wouldn't be a popular a girl. Popular girl. Yeah. And what Sissy Spacek did so beautifully, she's of course a gorgeous girl. Right. But you really believed right. you know, that she was She embodies otherness in that film. Yeah, yeah. She really does. And of course, again at the time, I now looking back, because I still watch the film like 
you know, at least three times a year, especially at this time of year, it's always on. Right. But I watched it obsessively as a child to the point where I think my mother was scared because another film that I loved at that time was Heavenly Creatures. I love Heavenly Creatures. Me too. Yeah. That was another huge inspiration. And again, a very queer uh, related horror. And I think yeah. my mom was scared. A true life queer related e- horror. Exactly. Yeah. And again, I think my mother was truly disturbed because those are like my two favorite movies and in both they kill their own mother <laughs> so I don't I hope she's uh, I love my mother very much I never wanted to kill her um, but but anyway my point was was that on both those films right. looking back now I see how they were my my safety runaway zone of feeling mm-hmm. an outsider but I didn't know at the time yeah well and both of those movies are about an era where speaking up and having agency over your own life, especially for queer kids was not a thing. So Mm -hmm. there was sort of maybe this evil catharsis and seeing, seeing these people kind of uh, get their comeuppance. Uh, Whenever I think of heavenly creatures, this is just a brief aside for for the sake of fun. I remember showing it to uh, a group of guys my freshman year of college, and there was this one like tough straight dude who was like, "Nothing bothers me." Like I'd be like, put, and he was like so annoyed. He was like, "This movie's not cool. Like I don't understand why we're watching it." And then at the end, when Melanie Linsky hits her mom with, with that the brick, brick, he. Yeah threw up and I was just like I mean it was like so amazing and he was just like oh my god he's like like I've never seen someone recoil because it's so well that's the genius to me that's the ultimate genius of that movie and again something that I've sort of I think subconsciously worked into everything I've ever written or wanted to make Mm -hmm. is what Peter Jackson does so well in that film is he he lulls you into existing with the girls you're yeah. in their universe right and their universe is magical and crazy and all over the place and then when the, the second that brick hits there's no score it's handheld you are plunged into the reality of holy shit this world yeah. that i've been compliant with is actually evil yeah and that i mean and that is a real kind of fuck you at the end of that, right. which is great i mean i love that no, it's true because you believe in their love so much yeah but it shows that love can go wrong yeah especially when you're young yeah <laughs> <laughs> hopefully not to that extreme not to that but, extent uh, yeah uh well we're talking about the dark places that horror can go and using that as catharsis and you know over the course of your career you've acted in many movies but uh in this conversation you talked about how even from an early age you looked at people like John Carpenter or Greg Araki and you thought this is what I want to be doing mm-hmm. and recently you wrote and directed a movie called Jack Goes Home that uh, played the festival circuit and it does touch upon some dark themes <laughs> and goes to some dark places so tell me a little bit about uh, that experience and, and making that movie um <clears throat> well uh Ironically, even though I've said that, you know, horror has been the kind of obsession, my lifelong obsession, I'd written about six or seven screenplays before Jack Goes Home and none of them were horror, Mm -hmm. at least not considered typical horror. They were dark and disturbing, but they were more dramas. And and, uh, it really was that my father uh, died in 2010 and was kind of my whole world. And I went into... A kind of delayed depression. It was like six months after he died. I didn't even realize how kind of lost I was. And I thought at the time, you know, I haven't really seen a movie about a young person losing a parent at that age and kind of losing their identity and their um, their ground to stand on, really. And so I knew then I wanted to make something about it, but I also knew I didn't want to make some whiny, oh, woe was me, I lost my father kind of indie. Mm-hmm. And so years later... 
the idea came back and I went, oh, well, what if it's, you know, what if I take the intensity of what I felt emotionally right. and mentally and put it in the guise of a horror thriller? And once that clicked, the script just kind of poured out and I let it pour out because I wanted it to have that turbulent, violent um, edge to it. And so, and then once I wrote it, it just, it happened really quickly. I mean, we, it moved very fast. I wrote it in April of 2014. I mean, 2015, we shot it in August of 2015. It was in South by, by March of 2016 and released by October of 2016. So it was this crazy roller coaster ride. And, um, but I, I think you've talked about this with other guests. The main thing with it was that I didn't want to make a movie for everybody. Right. I wanted to make a love it or hate it film because I feel if you try to make something for everybody, you make something for nobody. Right. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm very proud of it. And I, I'm, it's actually, it's so fitting now that the first feature I made really is a horror feature in its own weird right. psychological way, you know. But it was also catharsis as well. Oh, yeah. And I think that, uh, you know, it's a theme we keep returning to on the show and in this discussion is that that's the true power of the genre, that when done right, you can use it to say things you normally don't get to say. Absolutely. And uh, I think that Jack Goes Home really achieves that. Oh, well, thank you. No, I really, I agree with you wholeheartedly. You know, it's like the, there are topics and subjects that you can only tackle if you, you know, if you want it to be in any kind of thrilling way right. that you can do. And, and again, this umbrella, like I was saying of what horror means, what that right. means to people is very different. You know, there's a big difference between, and I love them both, but there's a big difference between Friday the 13th and the slashers and say, you know, Antichrist by Von Trier, you know, the, yeah. the, or the, the, the tenant Rosemary's Baby and Repulsion, the trilogy from Polanski, you know, right. It covers a huge world, and that's just like the really famous ones. You know, we're not even getting into right. the, the indies. The deep cuts. The important ones. <laughs> they are the important ones, because it starts with the underground and influences everything out. What's your favorite deep cut carpenter? Uh, oh. Well, honestly, my favorite deep cut carpenter is a non-horror film called Starman uh, with, with Jeff Bridges and Karen Allen. I love it so much. It's like a warm blanket. I, you know, she, I, if you've never seen it, he is an alien from space who looks like her dead husband. And then they have this sort of like epic road trip across 1980s America <laughs> that like ends in Monument Valley. And it's I don't know. It's just like a tearjerker. And I am somehow I'm, not carpenter yet. So carpenter at the same time. It's like it's that's right, because it's, it has none of the like space spooky elements but it's so his aesthetic the yeah. colors the like you know the framing. the framing there's there's just so much uh beauty to it uh for horror um and i think you know that my answer is going to be in the mouth of madness yeah, fucker because it's took my answer. so good yeah that's yeah. that's definitely mine and then now of course it's taken on cult status but i love prince of darkness too by the way the starman soundtrack um, I have a, I have a slowed down version of it and that's like what I fall asleep to every night. Oh, that's lovely. It puts you right to sleep. Trust me. It's so nice. Um, <laughs> well, let's talk about music. Uh, you've referenced this a few times, but you, uh, in addition to writing and directing and acting, dabble in music, not just dabble, you have an album out. And two. Two. Two albums out and one waiting to come out. <laughs> You're a machine. I can't keep up with you. <laughs> well. <laughs> I just have a lot of time on my hands. Um, no, but they, uh, thank you for bringing that up. No, it's uh, I'm, the first album I released under my own name, and it was one I started writing when I was 16. So it was like, you know, 
I look back on it fondly, but again, wait, is that the one with all the neon paint yes. on your face? I have that, the physical you have disc. That. Yes, and you know that all that um, face paint and everything. Is, I don't know for any of you who don't know, but you should see. It's hard to find, but have you seen Liquid Sky? Yeah, Liquid Sky is actually getting re-released on Blu-ray <gasps> by Vinegar Syndrome later no. this year. Yeah, that's like, and I don't, you know, I don't work for them, so that was like an un-sponsored un, uh, plug. But, but I mean, yeah, if yep. you're talking, if you're talking glam meets queer meets horror meets cult, I mean, Liquid Sky is like the ultimate. Yeah. Wet dream. I mean, it really, if you, yeah, it's about aliens in search of heroin and then they find the human orgasm is better and they, it's the two androgynous models and just see it. A standard People. Tuesday, really. A standard, yeah, yeah. Yeah, standard Tuesday afternoon. Um, yeah, but anyway, and then I sort of created this pseudonym of uh, Zero Times Zero and that, that album I'm, re- I'm really proud of. It got more into industrial and, and a lot of strings. And cause again, mm. again, it's like, it's so funny when I sit here with you, I realize how much horror films in everything I do shaped right. my aesthetic because I was raised on classical because my father was an opera singer. My mother was a pianist and um, all the kind of classical I was into led to film scores. So right. like the Pino Donaggio score in Carrie or the Penderecki and Leggetti music in The Shining or, you know, Ennio Morricone, you know, all and Carpenter scores, of course, they really influenced and then on top of it, the songs that came out of a lot of those films in the 90s that brought the industrial edge and the kind right. of harder edge. And then also artists like Bjork and Lamb and, you know, it just, they all came from soundtracks. So right. really my whole music aesthetic is also shaped by that genre, even, you know. That's so cool. It's like in your being. It's in, it's, it is, you cannot remove it. Right. I don't think it'll ever be removable. And there's a performance aspect that I'm sure you enjoy as well. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of performance, we have to talk about how we met (laughs) because there is a performance aspect to the person who introduced us. Yes. Thomas and I were introduced (laughs) by uh, the singular sensation known as Peaches Christ, uh, San Francisco's own cult maven uh while you were starring in her movie all about evil Mm -hmm. and i'm a friend of peaches and i was kind of like around at the time and uh ended up helping her with the tour afterwards we bonded we did i I, I think (laughs) that like i i remember one of our first conversations was about i think either argento or fulci and there was like it was just kind of like we're gonna be friends i think we talked about like opera and deep red and tenebrae and Mm -hmm. talked about yeah. And we did go see Suspiria together like years ago before the 4K restoration. We, I think it was uh, with Goblin. Yeah, you were at the yeah. Goblin concert. That's yeah, right, yeah. At the Egyptian. Yeah. And also, I should I should note the my whole thing with All About Evil is a prime indication of kind of, you know, what I'm drawn to because right. the only, the, I was doing the Terminator series. Right. Which was kind of at the height of its success. And I'd known Darren Stein, who you've had on the show previously. Yeah, we love Darren. We love Darren. I'd known Darren since I was like 16 or something and mm-hmm. had been a Jawbreaker fan. And um, and he knew Peaches. Right. And Peaches had this script of All About Evil. And Darren brought it to me. And I read it and I loved it. And then when I heard right. it was Elvira and Mink Stoll and John Waters was a part. You know, I was just like, oh, my God. And Natasha Leone. I was like, yeah. you're fucking kidding. And... Peaches came and visited me with Darren on set. Of Terminator? Yeah. And I was in full military gear. Right. So imagine Peaches showing up on a military set with like a lot of military men around. That was hilarious. Well, I've heard Peaches' side of the story and it always begins with like, the first time I saw Thomas, he had all these guns. (laughs) (laughs) That is true. Um, And so, yeah. And so Peaches and I met and and he, when he decided that he really liked me was that I had a copy of Desperate Living in my trailer, John Waters movie. Mm. And then he sent me, I'll never forget, 
which is not what you normally get sent as incentive to do a movie. Right. He sent me a faster pussycat kill kill lunchbox. And inside was a Bride of Chucky doll. Um, those like glitter vampire lip things that you can like put in your mouth and have the vampire teeth coming out. Oh, yeah. And a couple other really bizarre cult things. And the interesting thing was they were going to shoot all about evil right after Terminator was wrapping. Right. And I won't say which films they were, but I'd been offered three major studio right. movies. And you can imagine my agency's reaction when I said, no, actually I'm not going to do those. I'm going to go off and do this like micro budget movie in San Francisco for a drag queen director. <laughs> and I, you know, but I, it's the best decision I ever made because it, it, I, I mean, it was the best time I think I ever had making a movie, frankly. And it was just, I can't think of 2010 without thinking of that movie. It like, yeah, it was a huge, yeah. and then to go on the tour and like, then peaches had me write, um, the horror show, which was a song that I got to perform. And the was live like show. Yeah. Hardcore, like punk rock track. And it was, it was just a great time. And of course I got to meet you. So Aww. there you go. But then also I will say the day after we wrapped, all about evil. Right. We wrapped in San Francisco and I flew back to LA and it was so funny having been with all these hardcore horror fans, you know, in the crew Yeah. and having so much in common. The day I get back was, I'm no joke, the day I got the call that I was going to go audition for Nightmare on Elm Street. Which you did end up doing. Which I did yeah, yeah. and got, but it yeah. was such a weird switch to right. go from that, you know, really authentic universe of indie cult gorehounds into like, oh, now this is going to be the big new line. Yeah. And I never thought I'd get it to right. be honest. Um, and yeah, but I, but I did. And it was, you know, such a different experience. Yeah, um, honestly. And I think I've said this to you before your death in, in the nightmare remake is one of my favorite scenes. Cause you just are so committed. Like it's, <laughs> it's, I mean, obviously you don't want to watch your friend die, but like if the, if you have to, that's like <laughs> you deliver. It was fun doing that. It was fun. I mean, running in that factory, it was an old paint factory. And everybody was getting really sick. And the crew, of course, all had like, you know, masks on, right. but we couldn't. It was intense. Now, you've done really big studio horror films and you've done indie ones. Is mm -hmm. there uh, more of a can-do spirit on the set of an indie film, would you say? Well, I think when you're on a big budget project, you ha you oftentimes just have amazing crew members. I don't think that necessarily means that they want to be there, <laughs> but they work really hard and right. are really efficient and it's a really smooth running ship. Whereas with indie horror, you know, you, like you said, you, you're right. You have a lot of people who maybe aren't as experienced, but are super committed right. to being there. And there is a massive difference in spirit. Mm -hmm. And I think also what I've found, and I've spoken, you know, even, um, John said this to me once, but the more money you have, John Waters, no, John Carpenter or John Carpenter, yeah. the more money you have in, in, especially in this genre, yeah. I think the kind of less creative you have to be as a filmmaker. Um, and I would understand how that, how you'd get that way, because if you go, well, I've got millions and I've got this huge crew and I've got all this, I don't really have to come up with a way to get away with something great. Right. And even on my film on Jack goes home, it was a small budget. Right. And it's not a particularly, certainly when it comes to action or whatever, it's not a particularly ambitious movie, but I had to kind of find ways of, okay, how can I make this scare work? How can I make this shot interesting when I can't afford, right. you know, this jib or this dolly or this whatever? And I do think that's a good thing in many ways. Great. <clears throat> Now, uh, just over the last few topics, we've addressed... <laughs> we've covered a lot, yeah, sorry. Nightmare, All About Evil, Jack Goes Home. We talked about some of the TV shows and uh, projects you did as a kid. But you have a huge resume. <laughs> and um, when people approach you yeah. 
of all these like many many things you've done what are the what are the projects people bring up the most i'm just curious i have i joke about it it's not always the case but i have uh three categories it seems mm-hmm. so if it's like a a like comic-con loving dude or a mom mm-hmm. that's terminator well because sarah connor is the ultimate mom yeah, yeah. so i yeah. get that they are drawn to that if yeah. if they're young girls it's secret circle <laughs> which is shocking to me because the show's kind of old now right but i guess it's on netflix so there's these whole new slew of young people that really love it and it only went one season but um i remember when you left for that show i think we had like uh, dinner for Halloween or Thanksgiving or something, and then something. you turned around and left for like a year. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> in Vancouver. Yeah, and I would occasionally hear from you that it was cold. <laughs> it was cold and rainy. Yes. <laughs> um, and then the third category is uh, if it's kaboom, then I know I'm in West Hollywood. That's that's <laughs> my. So I basically got Comic Con and moms, young girls and gay guys. And it's Kaboom, Secret Circle, and Terminator. That seems to be... I think there would be some gay guy crossover with Secret Circle, though, because everyone on that show is gorgeous. Y- yeah, well, except me. Um, oh. Yeah, I, I always referred to myself as the other one, because Chris Ilka <laughs> was the hot one in the show. But, um, yeah, no, I'm sure there is. I mean, th- there's a lot of love for CW in that world. But I, honestly, that, you know, that show was, was such a blur. Um, yeah. Don't don't really have much. (laughs) It just happened quickly. Um, Well, you know, I need to get back to the reason we're here. It is Halloween. This is the Halloween special. You know, the the whole fun of like having a big Halloween spectacular. I'm so honored that I'm the Halloween special. I can't believe it. Well, look at the. You know, you basically grew up in the genre. Um, and still I'm growing up in the genre. Yeah, it's true. (laughs) So, you know, how does Thomas Decker celebrate Halloween? Well, it's not just a night for me. It's a month. It's I, th- I think it's a year for it's you. It's kind yeah. of a year. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a never ending. No, I mean, it's just the best. I Again, with my parents being very theatrical people, like from my baby, from my infancy, my dad would cover the whole house with these. He had just pounds and pounds of black fabric and the kids would always come to our house and then we'd put on a show. You know, it was the whole, like, it was my right. father's favorite holiday too. Right. Um, and so... Yeah, it's and I used to have. You've seen it. I when I lived in a slightly bigger place, I used to decorate the shit out of my place. I had yeah, where did so you store many. all that stuff? Like it was like its own. Like <laughs> I'm not kidding. I've had a storage unit in Van Nuys for like ten years, and that's basically all it holds. <laughs> is Halloween, Halloween decorations. Stuff. Yeah. Um, no. So my yeah, I have a little. I have. I like to get actually a quote. I, we were just talking about the secret circle. If we're all in town, we all get together and do pumpkin carving night. That's fun. Cause that's the best thing I got out of that show was all the friendships with everybody. They're uh, the best people in the world. Um, I've decided, I decided two days ago what I'm going to be this year. Can you tell us? Well, it is Halloween day. So like this, it sh- the oh, secret should be out. Probably yeah. already know. Yeah. I'm going as the, uh, one of the aliens from they live that you can see through the sunglasses. So I'm doing my own makeup, which is very intimidating because it's, you know, about this guy, Pink Stylist on YouTube. Mm-hmm. He's so cool. I'm like addicted to watching his makeup tutorials. And so and he did one for They Live and it was so good. And I was like, I can do that. I'm going to pull it off. So we'll see if I. This uh, this <laughs> woman that I know who's a fantastic producer, she used to work with Bumhouse. She did the They Live makeup one year, not to intimidate you, but like oh, it, it took her like hours it's a long yeah yeah yeah, because i'm making like fake eyes and the whole things and i'm gonna have my obey sign i feel like i feel like i'm gonna just chew bubble gum and watch you do this (laughs) it's like you can just come and hang out in the house yeah yeah. i feel it's very fitting in our current political climate that they live make a comeback absolutely that's a sean carpenter it's not a deep cut per se but it's one that doesn't get brought up as much because there's a satire element to it i think that 
Well, it's not satirical so much anymore. And now it's just pretty um, timely. <laughs> Um, you know, because it is a Halloween special and I'm obsessed with old variety shows, uh, like the Paul Lind Halloween special, which if you've never seen viewers, listeners, <laughs> whatever you're doing out there, uh, is a real gem because, uh, Paul Lind has just like a swath of guests, including Florence Henderson and Kiss on the same stage. Wow. Yeah. Picture that. That's a clash. Um, <laughs> and you are my special guest for Halloween. If you were to host a Halloween spectacular and got to pick four people from any point in in history fictional or otherwise i don't know who would your halloween spectacular include like like that would have to perform like in a variety show be your guests yeah oh um right you weren't expecting this no i wasn't that's a real that's a you're like we're gonna talk like the hard-hitting stuff you were ready for (laughs) but the like would i invite vincent price to my party i don't know like oh well vincent price yeah because he's so sexy. Um, he also could cook, which, you know. Oh, he could cook? I didn't know that. He wrote three cookbooks with his wife. Do they have to be a living, these no. people? Oh, they it's, could be it's dead? Halloween. Okay, yeah, well, obviously, it's their night to return. <laughs> yeah. All right, so obviously I would have Hitchcock. Okay. Easily. Um, I would have... Uh, I'd have Susie from Susie and the Banshees, because I feel like she'd do a great, yeah. you know, live show and look fantastic, as she sure. always does. I'd have Rob Zombie make some like media and hang out. Could be, you know what I mean? Because yeah. you know that's how he got his career start was making those videos for Universal Studios for the Halloween Horror Nights. Well, did which you is ever so go cool. to that maze that he did at Halloween Horror Nights where you had to wear the, the 3D? 3D one. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was really the House great. of a Thousand Corpses. Yeah, it was yeah. fantastic. And then finally, um, oh man, I don't know. See, it's not easy. Could it be a character? Yeah, it can be a character. I would love to co-host a party with Pinhead. <laughs> he's just stylish and he's got it all together. The true leather daddy. Uh, By the way, when you had the lovely, our dear friends, Gary and Edmund on this show, you were trying to figure out what musical you would make of a horror movie. Yeah, we did talk and about I that. I had an answer. I've always wanted to make a really dark rock opera of Hellraiser. Yeah, well, that would be my pick. If Clive or anyone from <laughs> Seraphim uh, Films is listening... Yeah, Thomas Decker is ready. I'm ready. And I don't even. I'm not even into musicals, but I would do a rock opera about Hellraiser. Dare I say, your musical will be legendary, <laughs> even in hell. <laughs> we'll sing your soul apart. Um, uh, what I really love about Pinhead, and I don't know that I've ever got a chance to talk about this, is that like the the, the sheer theatricality of that character is maybe even like above and beyond. Freddie, in some cases, because Doug Bradley yeah. delivers every word as if it's its own sentence. And there are, of course, the legendary li- lines like, you know, demons to some, angels to others. Right, right. But my favorite line in Hellraiser is just like a throwaway when Ashley Lawrence's character kicks open the door and he's just standing there and the body's on the ground and he's like, we want the one who did this. Yeah. <laughs> Who did this? <laughs> you know, it's kind of interesting because Freddy, Freddy is like the, like to me, Freddy is the vaudevillian clown. Oh, he's Ethel Merman of yeah. Skillers. Yeah, and, yeah, but yeah. Pinhead is like the grand madame of opera. You know what I mean? They're yeah. kind of both, they're, they're, they're both these super outlandish right. And then it's so interesting that when I think of like, for me, like the four, well, I suppose, well, one is kind of in the middle, but if you look at the main boogeyman, right, it's like right. you've got Freddy Krueger, the clown, Finn had the operatic grand dame, and then Michael and Jason are so stoic yeah. and silent. And then Leatherface is kind of like right in the middle. Yeah. But it's it's interesting that you could kind of have these all these successful franchises with these two polar opposite kinds of villains, mm-hmm. the silent stalker and the performer. 
I don't know. It's something I've thought about when I'm like tired late at night. I shouldn't have even brought it up on the show. No, I mean, I, I like I, I think that's kind of uh, everything in cycles, pop culturally speaking. And, you know, we don't tend to think of the new wave of slashers. I guess they're not even the new wave since the 80s or 30 years ago. Yeah. But um, when when you look at it, they all sort of mirror the, the, the first wave of movie monsters. Dracula is a theatrical yeah. character, as is Freddy, whereas the Frankenstein monster is the silent lumbering type, yeah. as is Jason. Every generation kind of has the icons that fit certain boxes. Mm-hmm. Um, and to that end, if like Freddy is Dracula and, and Jason is the Frankenstein monster, is Pinhead the Phantom of the Opera? In a yes, way, he is. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, Leatherface is, is a little wolf manny. True. Yeah. Oh, wow, I, I never thought of it that way. Uh, well, I'm just putting it together right here on the air. So it's a... Uh, it's an instant genius we're, remark. We're talking... Well, thank you. Uh, you may be the only one who thinks so. <laughs> we are talking about uh, horror film icons, and we're talking about Halloween and Halloween parties. And uh, we're kind of getting to the point of the show where I, I like to ask, um, you know, what have you seen recently that you like? And because it's Halloween, what should people be watching for Halloween? Oh, boy. Well, what I've, I recently, I'll be honest, I, there's been so much good shit on television versus films. It's kind of a strange time where I, I have, I have, don't go to the movies much, but I watch a lot of great TV, but the, but I will say my favorite thing, speaking of love it or hate it films that aren't made for everybody. My favorite so far was, um, mother Mm -hmm. by Darren Aronofsky, just because and I've, I sort of, I've said that on Instagram or something and, you know, I got some messages that were like, yes, it's a masterpiece and some messages being like, I can't right. get into it. I hate, and then friends of mine have either right. loved it or hated it. But, but great art is divisive. Exactly. And yeah. I just loved that it was a big budget movie released by a studio with a big cast that was yeah. a totally unique auteur perspective because it doesn't happen anymore. The days of Kubrick getting millions of dollars to make The Shining and, you know, those days are kind of over. And I loved that it was an insane horror film at its core, but also a major art film. I mean, and and Aronofsky really didn't seem to have any concern about people not only liking it, but even getting it, you know, and I, anyway, so that would be my favorite thing I've seen. I also loved A Ghost Story with Casey Affleck and Rooney Mara. I really, and that's not a horror film, but it's a beautiful film. Right. Um, and then as far as what to watch on Halloween, I don't know if you know this, but I did back in 2014, I did this 10 days of Halloween thing where for 10 days leading up to Halloween every day, I recommended three films mm-hmm. in three different categories to watch. And there was the um, beat off category, which was what you could just watch on your own and it didn't really matter. Right. The laugh off, which is like fun for your friends and the show off, which is where you want to look really intellectual. Right. So that was 30 films that I recommended and I want to do it again this year, but right. I, I, that's a lot. That's a lot. So, so how about this? Give me one film for each category that are like absolute musts. Musts yeah. for this year. Yeah. And it's tough. Can they like, have been on the old list? Or yeah. No? No, okay. but, yeah. Uh, for the beat off, I, my personal, my beat off movie, (laughs) you can cut that separately from this whole conversation and just put it somewhere else. It's going to be my text noise from this one. Yeah. 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 My beat off movie is Pet Cemetery. Great. Which is ironic because I don't think it's a great movie. And I think the novel is one of the best books ever. Um, Horrifying. Yeah. It's absolutely stunning. I mean, I've read almost everything Stephen King and that's probably my favorite but the movie is it because it's not so great and it's kind of dated but it i don't know it's just it's what i like to put in the background while i'm like decorating right or carving or whatever the show off i would recommend um 
it's really again love it or hate it and i actually hated it the first time i saw it and now it's become one of my favorites is martyrs Ooh, that's a tough one that is a tough one the french version not yeah yeah the remake just I, making I, that i actually haven't seen the remake i mean i i I plead the fifth. Um, gotcha. And then for the laugh off. Oh, God. You know what I rewatched? And I know like the real hardcore genre lovers are going to like hate me for this, I think. But I do think it's so fun as Cabin in the Woods. Cabin in the Woods is great. I rewatched yeah. it recently and it's just fun. It's just. Um, I just really think that it's it's a love letter to horror fans in a, in a similar but different way that Scream was. Yeah, yeah. I think whereas Scream was a satire of uh, the slasher films of the '80s, I think Cabin in the Woods. Cabin in the Woods, of course, does not exist without Evil Dead. No, but of course not. It's like it's it's sort of like someone like Joss Whedon, you know, Mr. Buffy the Vampire Slayer, taking Sam Raimi and being like, "All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna Buffy this." Yeah, yeah. It's and it's just it's it really does feel like a punk rock movie. I mean that yeah. final shot. No, if you haven't seen it, whatever. But when right. the giant hand comes out of the mountain right. and just slant, you know, it's so bombastic and in your face. It's right. just like having fun. So I don't know. That's for like your sleepover movie. Uh, I uh, I have to say that my recommendation for the Halloween season is the new Cult of Chucky. Uh, I think it's Which great. I have not seen yet, and it, I want to. It's so good. I mean, Jennifer Tilly is full tilt boogie. Uh, Fiona and hot Dorf. as ever. Oh mm-hmm. my God, so hot. And Fiona Dorf, who I worked with and love. She's fantastic. She's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And I love that she gets to be in the movie with her dad. That's so fucking cool. Like, yeah. Um, I really want to get her in the next thing I direct. Oh, she should be a get. Because I got a couple projects in the works that she would be right for. So let's hope. And what is the next thing you're working on? The next thing is this kind of uh, project that I did not write that is not genre. It's Mm -hmm. a kind of action thriller, but I can't talk too much about it. But it's really exciting. Um, Much bigger budget than last time. Okay. And then after that, I'm kind of returning to a project that I am almost finished writing that is really, I mean, a discussion in and of itself on your show. It's a... it's about a mother who hasn't seen her son in uh, 11 years and she gets an invitation to his marriage to his partner and when she gets there she doesn't believe that he's her son and or that any of them are human so it's a kind of melancholia meets invasion of the body snatchers i feel like i've been to those weddings yeah well i I basically came up with it because every wedding terrifies me right i hate them i think something's always gonna go wrong well, you mentioned the Catholic thing. Yeah. Yeah. I come from a Catholic background to the whole Italian thing. And uh-huh. those weddings go on for days. Like, I'm, yeah. I'm sure that I actually just died at one and like, we're still there. <laughs> so I get it. There's a horror movie there. I know, but anytime yeah. when people are like, what did you do for your wedding in April? I'm like, we went to a courthouse oh, yeah. and our friend took yeah. pictures and that's it. We had one person there to take pictures. I, we're, I'm not a wedding. Yeah. It's too much. It's, it's just scary. Little. Yeah. Um, well, I'm excited. I'm excited to see that. Yeah, well, hopefully. Well, you know me. I'll send it to you the second it's done. I'm excited. And then you can rip it apart on this show. I would never. <laughs> uh, so, uh, in closing. In conclusion. In conclusion. Um, any final thoughts for Halloween? Just, I mean, just live it up. Just, you know what? This is, this is for, for freaks like us, this is our time. I mean, like you said, Halloween is a year-round event, I think, for people like you and me. But this yeah. is... This is the period. This is this is the time. And remember, it is, you know, it is quite as it is when the ghosts are supposed to be with us. So, right. Don't forget the macabre element. That's true. There are (laughs) three ghosts in the studio right now. Are there? That's what's, you know, been refilling the coffee. Oh, oh, yeah. I got a new water bottle. (laughs) How nice of them. Uh, Where can people find you? Uh, I am on Instagram. Uh, I'm 
sometimes on Twitter, I connect my Twitter to my Instagram. I'm terrible with it. And I do yeah. apologize because I, I have really nice people who write nice things to me. And so I will try and improve in 2018. That's my goal. That's my New Year's resolution. <laughs> <laughs> well, resolutions were made to be broken. <laughs> Uh, Thomas, thank you for coming on. This has been an absolute pleasure. It was a real trick and treat to have you here. <laughs> uh, happy Halloween, my friend. Happy Halloween, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Michael Verratti, and this has been Dead for Filth, yours always in glam and gore. Good night and good luck. Hey, thanks for sticking around here on the Dead for Filth Halloween special. Uh, You know, Halloween is a family affair, and I couldn't end this spooktacular without bringing back my own little Dead for Filth family. If you remember from the birthday mini-sode, Drew and Dom, my producers, uh, who suggested movies to you to watch for my birthday, they're back here for Halloween to tell you some things to check out uh, for this spooky season. Welcome back, both of you. Glad to be back. Thank you for having us. So yeah, let's just dig in. Uh, what are you both watching for Halloween? Um, my big uh, one that I've been putting off for way too long. I'm ashamed that I had low expectations for it, but Prom Night blew me away. I'm like... The original I, Prom Night. The original Prom okay. Night. Yeah, I'm not talking about the... Uh, the Jamie Lee Curtis, and um, yeah, I absolutely loved it. It uh, takes a lot from Carrie and Halloween, obviously, but it is so much more engaging and interesting than I was prepared for and uh, there's a lot more whodunit than I was expecting to. You know what I really like about Prom Night 1 is this amazing choreographed dance sequence that just kind of comes out of nowhere. They don't really like give you a heads up that this Mm -hmm. is going to go down. Uh, But two, as far as franchises go, it's actually a pretty solid franchise. Like Beyond the original Prom Night, uh, Prom Night 2, Hello Mary Lou Mm -hmm. uh, is really great. I'm a big fan of Prom Night 3. (laughs) Um, Definitely for, for you old school slasher fans, if you need a new franchise to dig into yeah absolutely and the best place to start is the og oh hell yeah yeah um and and, you know uh i actually when i'm when i'm producing in the background i keep notes and i listen to everything that you say um (laughs) and so i've 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 been keeping notes of of suggestions of things that i uh had not seen um but but wanted to see and uh so i we saw night of the creeps uh this october which was amazing it's one of my favorites it was so fun it was just uh you know for, for you know anyone who hasn't seen it um it's just it's a wonderful throwback to you know the the even uh, uh, like like you know old nostalgia horror films like The Blob, mm-hmm. um, but just totally eighties and goofy and fun um, and, and and a lot of queer undertones throughout. JC the film. is definitely gay. Oh, for sure. Was that yeah. the first time you saw it too? No, no, no I've seen it uh, two or three times before. Okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, I am a big fan of Fred Decker, who made Night of the Creeps, because he also made Monster Squad, which are two or mm-hmm. some like oh. just popcorn loving kind of great movies of, of that era that, that's an all around the year kind of movie for me I 100% mm-hmm. agree um, well in the episode that with Thomas I said that you know my my big Halloween recommendation is the new installment of the Chucky franchise Cult of Chucky I think that what Don Mancini does with that uh, franchise is so amazing because he takes risks and goes to new places with it and, and what he does with this new one is kind of ballsy but Awesome, uh, but you know, in the spirit of of just recommending some other things, uh, I recently revisited the original 
When a Stranger Calls with Carol Kane. And um, I usually make a habit in the month of October to try and watch a new horror film every day. So 31, you know, horror movies over the course of October. But I've actually rewatched When a Stranger Calls like three times already this <laughs> month because I forgot how good it is. And you can see the um, the building blocks of other movies to come. Like the mm-hmm. opening 20 minutes of When a Stranger Calls clearly inspired Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson for Scream. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just so delicious. It's a little sleazy. It's, it's whodunit. I don't know. I, I think it's so good. Carol Kane uh, doesn't get enough credit in the annals of horror for being, you know, this this ferocious survivor. And then Colleen Dewhurst is like this like <laughs> badass chain smoking broad that. Uh, oh, my God. It's so good. If you haven't seen it, uh, when the original When a Stranger Calls is a true masterpiece that went on to inspire a lot of other things. It was directed by Fred Walton, who also made April Fool's Day. Uh, just just a must. And I absolutely love that some of the biggest ladies of comedy uh, Carol Kane and Andrea Martin both got their start in 70s slasher movies where they get very obnoxious phone calls by deep-voiced men. Well, well Andrea even, Martin was in Black Christmas. Yeah, even, she was. Even yep. Jamie Lee Curtis with her, you know, comedic talents. That's, you know. Yeah. Look at trading places. Hell yeah. There, there's, a, there's a, I mean, that's sort of what we talk about a lot on the show is just the nuances of horror. And, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, it was actually, I was watching a, a special features um, for, uh, on, on the Blu-ray from From Beyond, and one thing that they talk about is that um, you know, especially you know, with Stuart Gordon, there's there's such a subtle line between, you know, rage, horror, and comedy that it's yeah. just it's always bordering on that line, and that's where a lot of like you know, Freddy fans and a lot of other you know fans kind of find that. So I think that's very natural that a lot of these scream queens also have that comedic ability. You know, I really like From Beyond. I it, I know that uh, Reanimator is Stuart's cult favorite. Mm -hmm. But I think there's something really delicious about From Beyond that doesn't get talked about enough. It's the leather. Well, it's the leather. (laughs) And it's also the color schemes. You know, Mm -hmm. Reanimator is very green, whereas uh, From Beyond is very pink. And what is is really cool, Mm -hmm. and it never really occurred to me uh, until I had worked with Stuart Gordon, is he told me, he said, well, the point is the movies are inverse of each other. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Reanimator, Jeffrey Combs is a mad scientist and... uh, Barbara Crampton's a helpless victim, and from beyond, Barbara Crampton's a mad scientist, and Jeffrey Combs is a helpless victim. And I have to say, like, I think she's far more threatening than he is. Oh hell yeah! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah no, I, I'm, I, you know, I'm such a fan of of Lovecraftian horror, um, mm-hmm. and that's you know something that from beyond is one that like it, I, I first saw it last year during our like Halloween spectacular, um, and and it, it's now just become one of my favorite films of all time. And it's I, so I, good. Yeah, I do see that that big polarity between that and Reanimator, mm-hmm. um, and so. You know, for anyone out there that I, you know, when I first saw Reanimator, I was a little disappointed. It had been talked up so much, um, and I, I was just expecting to love it so much that because it's Lovecraftian. Right. Um, so for any of you out there that were a little disappointed by it, go watch From Beyond if you haven't, because um, you'll probably like that one a little better. It is oozing oodles of fun. Oh my gosh. Oozing is a key word for that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, and uh, as for Lovecraftian movies, there was another movie that you had mentioned that you're really yes. into? Um, yeah, for any fans of Lovecraft crafting horror um uh there's a great film that came out just this year uh it's on netflix now uh called the void 
Um, and it is just uh, oodles and oodles of fun. I'm going from <laughs> oozing to oodles. Um, uh, it, it's just, it, it's wonderful. It's a contemporary take on horror. Um, and one of the cool things about it that I, I, I really found cool that makes it, you know, very contemporary is that, um, you know, there's there's just as many influences from traditional horror um, as there are from, you know, the horror genre in video games. Yeah. Um, it's very Silent Hill. It's very Dead Space. Um, and so it's it's just... Uh, one of those films that just it, it's very fun for practical effects um, and uh, just really goes off the rails at the end. I I got to see it at Beyond Fest last year and I really think that it is such an atmosphere piece. I've, I'm definitely a fan of the Beyond. I love uh, the filmmakers behind it. They're part of the collective known as Astron Six. They made uh, also uh, with their other group members this uh, very disturbing movie called Father's Day and this Giallo homage called The Editor. I recommend both of those as well, as well as their short films, which I believe were released on DVD by Troma, so you can check out the whole Astron 6 oeuvre after you watch The Void, because I'm sure you're going to be captivated. Mm-hmm. Uh, any other recommendations for the Halloween season? Uh, my favorite modern horror film, which is also probably my favorite movie of the year, it's been a great, great year for female-led horror films with Raw and Mother and all that, but Kristen Stewart in Personal Shopper mm-hmm. might be th- my favorite horror film of the year. It is a very, very gothic, moody ghost film done in hyper-modern Europe, fashion industry, and takes so many cues from Lewis Allen's The Uninvited from the 40s with Ray Land, and incorporates a murder mystery element, and it's had me on the edge of my seat and scared the most of any other film this year, and it also had me openly weeping the most of any other film this year. Right. So it gets major kudos, and it's got a little bit of uh, gender dysphoria running underneath the uh, thematic current, so a little bit of a queer element. I mean, Kristen Stewart is a queer icon enough for uh, Absolutely. fans of the show. She eschewed sparkly vampires and took <laughs> control of her life. Uh, so let's recap, everyone. What what all? What's our list? What are these movies we all need to well, see? Well, I think we got Prom Night, we got Personal Shopper, we got The Void, mm-hmm. From Beyond, Night of the Creeps in there, as usual. For sure. Yeah. Right. Cult of Chucky. Cult of Chucky, hell yes. And When a Stranger Calls. Mm-hmm. And I guess, you know, maybe to watch something that's actually set in the season that... Uh, is not the usual John Carpenter's Halloween or Trick or Treat, although watch both of those if you haven't. Uh, there is a film from the 80s called Lady in White, which is set on Halloween night, directed by Frank Lelogia, and it is an awesome little ghost story about uh, a little boy besieged uh, while trick or treating, and I hugely recommend it. And of course, if you are listening to the show and have been paying attention at all this month, we have an array of horror films available for you on the Glam and Gore Picture Show, which was our little TV venture for the month of October. So hop on over to Reverie and check that out as well. Uh, Dom, Drew, thanks for making this magic happen every week and for sharing your cinematic insight. And everyone, please have a happy Halloween. This has been Dead for Filth. Good night and good luck.